Hello and thanks for tuning in. This is the radio ministry of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please open up your Bibles and join us. Here's Pastor Dennis Helton. Have, uh, have you ever had any false accusations against you? Have you ever had it where somebody has made some statements about you and it's not true at all? And I'm very confident, I'm very sure that probably every one of us sitting here has had that happen to us. We can relate to that, right? Sometimes it can be very hurtful. We all know then how that feels. Um, sometimes we have to give a defense of uh, ourselves or those charges because it can potentially destroy somebody's trust and confidence uh, in us. And what we stand for ultimately is dealing with the, the truth of God. And sometimes the, the truth can be undermined, and uh, so it can take our integrity down, our character down, and so we want to make sure that that is defended, and at the same time to be able to do it in a, in a loving way. But um, if you've ever had that, and I'm sure you have, then you're not alone. Many have, and, and of course uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, would be one that we could uh, draw from who dealt with this constantly. Um, he was called the Prince of Preachers back in uh, the late 1800s. Of course, one of the, the great preachers uh, that would be even close to our time. And, of course, he had the respect of hundreds of thousands of people uh, in London and all around. But he had enemies that attacked him and attacked him with a, with a vengeance. And so here uh, is a sentence that he uh, put together about the attacks that were on him. He said this, Scarce a day rolls over my head in which the most villainous abuse, the most fearful slander is not uttered against me both privately and by the public press. Every engine is employed to put down God's minister. Every lie that man can invent is hurled at me. <laughs> every lie. I don't know if every lie, but I'm sure it was many that he had to deal with on a constant basis basis and I believe for the Apostle Paul it was even worse and he took the abuse he was constantly under attack by the enemy as he ministered from town to town people were calling him false and these were people that were false apostles really they're calling him false and destroying his credibility destroying his character trying to destroy his teaching his witness his integrity everything that was about Paul they were putting down so those accusations happened everywhere he went, and I think they reached a zenith at Corinth because this is why this letter is written, because of the attack on the Apostle Paul, and they were even now doubting that he was even a, an apostle. And they said it was his own agenda that he had, that he, he was abusive, and that he was manipulative. But the truth is, is that he had love and care and affections for the Corinthians. And there could not have been anything further from the truth of the heart that Paul had for them. He gave everything that he had, didn't he? Everything he had for presenting the, the truth of the gospel, that was really the ultimate. That was his motive. His affections were very well evident. And we read out through the book of Second uh, Corinthians and all through the New Testament. You see the heart of Paul just spilling out but especially here in 2 Corinthians. And so the real reason, though, why he defended himself, it wasn't so much about himself. 
as it really was about the gospel. It was for the sake of the truth of the gospel. And so that is what was being discredited because he preached truth. And so when you think of that, then they attack his character, they attack his concern, they attack his love. And this is all to be brought, be brought out into the light. And so that's what he's doing here as he writes these Corinthians, as he comes from his heart and for what, what it really is. So the aforementioned, just what we have just talked about, this is why the letter is written. It's the defense of the apostle and his message, the gospel. And we've already seen enough defense of this in the first six chapters. We've entered into chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. This is where Paul is going to show his love for the Corinthians even more. It's, it's, it's like, wow, do you think he has enough evidence? <laughs> He certainly does, but now he just gives more overwhelming evidence to this. They don't have room to argue. They don't have room to wiggle once he puts this forth. He sacrificed for them, didn't he? He was willing to lay down his life, and love is really like that, isn't it? Willing to lay down your life for someone. Jesus said something like that, didn't he? He's pleading for them for the affections that he had for them, that they would have the affections for him. And he pleads, he begs. They broke Paul's heart. Ah, oh, he had done all these things for them, and yet they were leaving him. But you know what? His love for them would not let him abandon them. You would think he had every right, worldly, as far as the wisdom is concerned there, he should have just left. Okay, I've had enough. He's proven it. I'm out of here, right? No, he doesn't do that. I think we see here a Christ-like love, yes. a portrayal, a picture of the very love that Christ had. And that's what we're going to observe today. We're going to look at this, and we're going to see how this passion that Paul has for God's people can also take effect in our lives. It is taking effect. If you're a Christian, it is. But it, we want our love to gain even more, right? And that's what this is written for, for us too. Let's uh, stand. Let's read our text today. Start at verse 2. This is called, What Biblical Love Looks Like. Make room for us in your heart. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us, by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, 
but also by the comfort with which he was he has comforted in you as he reported to us your longing your mourning your zeal for me so that i rejoiced even more Amen. let's pray father thank you for this endearing word shows what love really is how it really acts and it goes against the grain of what the world's definition of love is help us to have that impressed upon our hearts this morning as we learn a little bit more of who you are in your nature your character of love guide us strengthen us here comfort us open our hearts up to you so we can open our hearts to others in jesus name amen Paul has a word for the people. This 2,000 years later speaks to us too. What's he telling the Corinthians here? Make room for us in your hearts. Make room. Okay, Paul wanted the love that he had given to them to come back to him. God wants that too. The only way we can love God is because he first loved us. We have his love. His love is shed abroad in our hearts. It's shed abroad. It's, it's overflowing. That love then extends back to people. Love God. Love your neighbor. The two great commandments. The great commandment is love God. If you love God, then everything else falls to place in that area, doesn't it? So we see this uh, as Paul pleads us. Make room. He's talking about the spiritual heart here. Make room in this spiritual heart, the Corinthians. This is dealing with an enlarged heart. If you take this in, in its literal sense, uh, it says in your hearts and it's italicized. It means it's not originally in the Greek, but in the context, that's what it means. So it's good that it's put there. Make room for us is what the literal Greek is, or provide a place for us. And if we say, Make room for me in, 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 your, in your heart. We understand that, don't we? And so, therefore, that uh, kind of vernacular in, in our language today. An enlarged heart. He's already said something like this before. Uh, chapter 6, just go back a few verses. Verse 11. Our mouth has spoken freely to you. There he has an open mouth, right? O Corinthians, our heart is opened wide. There you go. That's what he's talking about. And we'll get to verse 12 and 13 in a moment. But he says, that's what he has. It's having the capacity to love others. A large heart to really, really love others. So he's, he has a plea, doesn't he? The only problem is, is that the reason he says make room in your hearts is because if you look back into chapter 6, verse 12, he says this. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. That's easy, isn't it? The heart is restrained, it's constricted, right? If you have, if you have blood vessels constricted, that means you don't have a, a proper flow going through, right? It can be dangerous. Well, here he says, you're restrained in your own uh, uh, affections. At verse 13 says it, now in a like exchange, I speak as to children. This is simple. Open wide to us also. Open wide. You notice Paul says us there. 
and it could be the rest of the apostles working with him. I think basically it's him. He, he's not trying to put the focus on just himself. And a lot of times it's, we'll use the word we, but it's really sometimes meaning me, you know, I. But we hate to overuse the word I. We already have enough of I, don't we? So that's why he would say us. And it's in italics, a two again. He says, okay, our mouth is wide, our heart is wide, we're vulnerable, we're opening it up, and what we want you to do is open wide also. That's the idea. Provide a place for us. Koreo is the word. Provide a place. Uh, what was happening is that they were clinging to the sinful associations. And, of course, we just did chapter 6, verse 11 through 12, from verse 14, on, or verse 13, from 14 on to the chapter 7 verse 1 is really focusing on that one verse. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. And then he starts giving reasons why. You know, he says, what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or, or what fellowship light with darkness? What harmony is Christ with Belial or a believer in common with an unbeliever, right? Those are opposites. What do they have in common? Nothing. And so after giving that kind of a reprimand, as he's saying, it's a command there. Don't be bound with unbelievers. Don't let them take precedence in your life as far as the spiritual aspects are concerned. He says, withdraw from idolatrous partnerships. Mm -hmm. And it really gets into idolatry there. It's talking about the spiritual things that they were doing. Some of them were still participating in some of the temple worship, the temple idol worship that's in Corinth. And that's why Paul would mention the temple. They knew the temple. And we, that's what we focused on a couple of weeks ago, right? They knew all about that. And, uh, and of course, I think we, we dealt with this even more in depth last week and explaining that uh, the idea of the temple, the living God. This, this is our body. The body of Christ is the, the body, the, the living temple, right? And we are the temple where the Holy Spirit lives. And so with that kind of thought, he says, you don't have anything in common with idolatry, the pagans, right? So that, that's in a nutshell what we kind of dealt with in the last couple of weeks. And so now what he's saying, with what he has said previously, just like in any kind of letter, he's saying, I want you to find room for me because what you have filling your heart is an idolatrous fellowship and worship, a partnership with the world. He says, that's what you're partnership with. You need to make room. And to make room, what do you have to do? You have to get rid of the idolatrous partnership that they have in their heart. He's saying, withdraw from that kind of participation and that false religious associations and all the things that go along with things that are false. Right? So if they move away from those ties, then what are they going to do? They're going to make room for Paul to come into their hearts and the truth that goes with that. So he exhorted them to separate from them in verse 14 and then gave examples from 14, 15, all the way on through to all the way to chapter 7. You know, okay, we have these promises. Cleanse ourselves. Purify ourselves, Right? defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness, fearing God, fearing the true living God, right? So that's how we got where we're at now. So I, I think you have to say, isn't it amazing that Paul, as much as he had given 
them the saving gospel and build them up with the truth. They had spurned him. They turned their back on him. But his love is so real for them that he keeps pleading for them to return. He could say, hey, I'm going on to the next city. I'm getting out of here. That's a forgiving love, isn't it? He stays right there with them. I think it's a demonstration of what biblical love is. It is in action. We can define love all we want, but when we look at it here, isn't this different than the way the world would define love? Obviously. Vast difference. There is nothing that's close to that. You think of 1 Corinthians 13, that love chapter, and we'll be kind of turning there, I think, in, in a short while. Um, that's the picture of Christ, really. matter of fact, we can't even meet those in our own uh, lives. Only in Christ can we, we do those things. Everybody has 1 Corinthians 13 read at their wedding, you know. People have plaques of it and such. If they really look at it, see what it is, it's impossible to follow. Only in Christ. Agape is the highest virtue. The extreme virtue. There are three gifts that will remain. Love is at the top. Fruit of the Spirit, what's the very first one? Love. If you have that, the other things really start following. And selfishness starts leaving. And it makes room for more love to come in and control us. So there is an idea there about the heart opened wide. If you get rid of the idolatrous worship and you bring in the love here that Paul and the truth that's involved, you have enough love to do what is truth. Love and truth go together. So now we go to the, the next phrase. And he gives what really here are three kinds of offenses here in, at the end of this verse 2. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Obstacles. Obstacles to loving back Paul. And he says, I didn't have these obstacles. I don't have those here. No matter what had been said about Paul, about his actions, and the actions that were taken against him, Paul never ever did anything wrong against them. He didn't give them any kind of occasion of offense. And so he starts off with, we wronged no one. Adikea. It means to treat unjustly. To injure somebody. It's a wrongful dealing with somebody. To cause injury. To bring on something like fraud or theft. We wronged no one. It can be a general term, but it, it certainly goes against treating somebody unjustly. He never mistreated anybody, did he? And they know that. The next one he says, we didn't corrupt anyone. We corrupted no one. Pharaoh. It means to destroy. It means to ruin. It means to bring moral ruin. Corrupted. We're dealing with maybe morals here more than anything. First Corinthians 15.33. You can turn there if you like. Or if you remember it says this. And it's dealing with bad company. Corrupts what? 
good morals. Bad company. If you hang with the wrong people, what were they doing? They were hanging with idolatry. Now, does that say that we can't be with unbelievers? He's not saying that. He's saying we don't hang with that kind of spiritual aspect. We are in control of things. If they start controlling you, if you start doing the things that they do, then he says you must separate from that kind of lifestyle. You want to give them truth and gospel. So that's why we can still say, yes, we are to be around unbelievers. But it's for one motivation that we would be there, ultimately to bring them to Christ. Otherwise, what do we really have in common? Nothing. And their way of living is going to try to take your way of living because that's their nature. When you're a Christian, you have a new nature. So, the term to corrupt could refer to even doctrine. It can refer to money. But probably refers most to morals. It's going to ruin, ruin your good morals, bad company does. Love doesn't do things that are corrupting to other people. You would not want to cause someone to sin, would you? You would never want to lead somebody down that kind of road. And Paul said, I never made anybody stumble. I never made anybody fall into iniquity. He caused the church no harm. Everything was meant for one reason. He corrupted no one. Um, he didn't ever encourage some kind of immoral conduct, did he? But people were accusing him of that. Love always seeks the betterment of other people. Never wants to corrupt them, to tear them down. Love wants to elevate its object. Love seeks purity. Love seeks goodness, godliness, holiness for people. So that would be the idea of um, corruption there. He didn't make people sin, did he? He did not do that. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Oh, they were saying all sorts of things about Paul and him take advantage of the situation because they had collections in every city where they went so they could take the money back to Jerusalem for there was uh, poverty that was there because of the conditions that had come upon the city. There was a, a relief fund is what they were gathering when they would go to the cities. And so people would say, see, he's using that for a smoke screen. He's using that, and he's actually using it for his own personal funds. So we have this idea about what he's using the money for. There's no foundation for that at all. Matter of fact, if you look at the scriptures, you find out that Paul sometimes went without food. He was hungry. Sometimes he went without much clothing, winter coats and such maybe, shelter. So Paul didn't take advantage of anybody. The word there is pleonecto, and it means to defraud for the purpose of gain. Did he defraud people for personal gain? Did he exploit people? Well, why in the world would he be out there in the freezing cold sometimes without food, without a place to really call home? Was he greedy? Was he grasping what others had? Was he manipulating people? 
So it's the idea of taking advantage of people for money. Turn to chapter 12, same uh, book here, 2 Corinthians. Chapter 12, verse 17 and 18. Certainly, I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? What they said is what they did. They lined up with their beliefs. Uh, and he's even talking about Titus here. We, you know, we didn't take advantage of anyone, did we? Corinthians don't have a charge against them on that. The false teachers have come up with that, though, haven't they? Paul was accused of all of these kind of things. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12. Here he's talking about giving, giving money to people who minister. He says in verse 8, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law, he goes back to the law, he says, also say these things, for it is written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle the ox where he is threshing. Speaking of the one who gave him the word of God. He says, you, you, you know, of course you pay them, you know, he says that. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Is he? Even more so people. Or, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? And then Paul says this, Yet for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. So they should be gotten in return, but how did Paul do this? If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Even Paul had more right over the Corinthians. He's the first one that brought it there and taught it to him. He says, don't we have the right Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. He didn't take the money from them. Sometimes people can use that excuse because people can be taking their money or whatever. But the thing is, it's biblical for that. Paul says, I didn't even take it. He didn't take it any kind of money from them. So it wasn't for any of those kind of gains to himself. Love seeks not its own, seeks not its own goals and purposes. Look in 1 Corinthians 13, and we go to that love chapter just for a moment. I can't spend much time in it, but it certainly goes along with what we're talking about. Verse 4, love is patient Anyone here really, really, really patient? I mean really patient. How about when you get out on the road driving around those crazies? How about if you're a parent? How about if you're... He goes on and on, doesn't it? How about somebody on the job that you really have difficulty with? Love is patient. It starts right off right there. Boom, Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account 
a wrong suffered. Oop, there's one. That's two. Okay, brother. One more. Three strikes are out. That's three. Oh, oh, seven times. Forgive your brother seven times. Six, seven. Okay, that's it. No, no, no. Jesus clarified that. Seventy times seven. Okay, okay. Don't have enough paper. <laughs> that's right. We're going to have paper. It's talking about on and on and on and on. There's no number. Don't take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love does not seek its own. Love is not selfish. It's not about us, is it? Love has the attitude shown there in 1 Corinthians 13. We'll go back to our 2 Corinthians 13. See how all those kind of tie in with what he had written to them before. He says uh, in verse 3 now, I do not speak to condemn you. It sounds like he's judging. They would say, oh, you're judging us, Paul. He says, I don't condemn you. This isn't my final verdict. I am not angry with you. That's the idea. He's saying, okay, you know, I, I didn't do these things. I didn't corrupt I, you. I didn't take advantage. I didn't wrong anyone. I'm not angry with you. I don't bring a final verdict on you. Katakrino means to make a final sentence to judgment. He says, I don't bring that. He's forgiving, isn't he? He is not condemning. How much so like Christ that is, right? Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. <laughs> not because of our goodness, because of the righteousness of Christ and where he has placed us. The Corinthians, it's true, they were unkind. And they deserved to be judged, really. They should have a final verdict. They were guilty. They were guilty of all of this against Paul. And Paul refrains from incriminating them. I'm not angry. I'm not mad. I'm not blaming you. I'm not passing judgment. He's concerned that they would misunderstand what he's saying here. And he's saying, I want you to know this is coming from the motives of Christ. It's about my love for you. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Something he had said to them before in his other letter here. We get to read anyway. 13, 5. This love chapter, it does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Wow. It means it doesn't do an accounting situation, a wrong suffer. You don't even count it. He's not holding that against him. No condemning on his part. Pretty incredible, isn't it? After all he had gone through, almost dying for them. I could have died. Amazing. This is real. I mean, it's not some poetic 
kind of writing here. That's, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 is, what a flow. What, what a picture of what agape is, right? So beautiful. This is how it works. And Paul's putting it into action. I'm sure there were times where he didn't feel like putting forth true love. Doesn't matter. You do what you're supposed to do, what is right. So we go to the next one in verse 3. This is about having the love in the heart all the way to death. After he says, I don't condemn you. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I said this before. Well, we could say one thing back in chapter 6, and we could look at many other texts, but he says our mouth, in verse 11, our mouth is spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. Heart is open wide. Our hearts are for you. And, and uh, your ancient writings at this time, they would have known that phrase that he puts forth. The expression to live together and to die together. Live together, die together. That was used whenever mutual friends would be, dis it would be a discussion about friendship and loyalty amongst people. A true friendship of true loyalty. And that's the idea that he's talking about there. We would live together. We would take it even to the point of death. Now that is loyalty, isn't it? Even if it meant that. We're so bound to each other that we're willing to die for that relationship. So he, he kind of repeats this again as he said it before. Or he might have said it in uh, that, that lost letter or two that he had written them that we don't have. As he says here, I've said this before, it could mean at chapter 6, first part of this phrase here, he has a, a commitment here, a commitment to them, and it's, he's trying to make it sink into them. If you go to a wedding, they will have vows. Now, I don't know if these vows are said very much today or not. I've seen it where many don't say this same thing anymore, but... You remember the traditional one, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do we part. Right? That's a vow to God, really. That's to God, and it's also to the witnesses that are there. And that's how seriously that is to be taken. Till death do we part. Well, Paul is saying this, I have a relationship with you, with the body of Christ, fellow believers, till death do we part. I'll be with you in life and all the way to death. As a matter of fact, it goes beyond that. Because we're talking about eternity here, aren't we? doesn't stop at death of the body. These, two, these destinies here are linked together in this life and beyond. Paul expresses himself here in a classical formulation of, of a phrase that they would know. They would have known that phrase. It's abiding friendship and loyalty. And he sticks that on them. <laughs> Verse 4. Great is my confidence in you. Wow. He has great confidence. Do you know what they've just done to Paul? <laughs> if we could just... Read the first six chapters again. <laughs> Go to other places. 
we could go to chapter 7, back in chapter 6 actually, uh, uh, talking about the all the things that he had gone through, beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors, strifes, all, all that stuff. And I'm not going to read all that, but that's the idea there, what he had, he had done. And so, you know, he says, and not that they had been beating him and having tumults, that kind of thing, but they had, uh, they were starting to abandon him. Love is characterized by trust. He trusts them. Paul, how can you trust them? Do you know what they did to you? I trust them. I have confidence in them. It means frankness, boldness, and openness. I trust them. I have confidence in them. Parisia. I talk to you with utter frankness. At the same time, I'm an optimist. I find an opportunity in every difficulty that comes along. That's what Paul does. Rather than a difficulty in every opportunity. See, he sees opportunity when the difficult situations come along rather than vice versa. Paul didn't have a blind confidence in them because he knows that if these people are Christians, God's working in them. That's why he has confidence in them. 1 Corinthians 13.7 We go back to that all-familiar text again. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I like what MacArthur has said about this. Even when it seems like everything has run out, you still believe the best about somebody. You're still there. I'm confident in them. And even when you now have lost hope, which is the next step. You don't have any hope in this thing. I'm still going to, I can still hope. I can still hope. It's hard to believe. I can still hope. But when you lose the hope, endures all things. When it's gone down to where there's nothing left, it seems like, still endure it all. That's the kind of love that he was practicing here. Believes the best about somebody. Where does confidence come from? Love. Love hopes. Love believes. Love endures. Love believes the best about somebody. Somebody can tell you the worst about somebody. And you know what you do? You have trouble accepting that. Because you've seen another side, though. And you still want to believe the best about somebody, even though you just heard the worst. When you have somebody really in your heart, when you have a real love for them, you're extremely reluctant to believe anything but the best. And you know, you have to be discerning, I know that. But I'm just saying as far as the way that you look at them, that's the way that parents have to do. When kids do things against you and they keep continuing to do it, it's the way best friends do. It's the way a marriage partnership should be. They believe the best using wisdom. Great is my confidence in you. Can, can you believe Paul said that? Great is my confidence in you. Look at Philemon 21. Philemon is a book about forgiveness. A whole book. It's one chapter. 
But in that one chapter, you get, and you can read that in just a few minutes, folks. If you ever really want to be able to try to forgive somebody, look at what Paul tells this man Philemon that he is to forgive somebody who has very much wronged him. That's one chapter, and I have so much difficulty finding this one chapter. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> You can find Hebrews, which is a long chapter, long book. Uh, verse 21. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Philemon's a believer. Philemon is a very dear believer, very dear brother in Christ. He had a slave who he owned. His slave left him. Slave was an unbeliever when he left. Somehow, someway, just by accident, he ran into the Apostle Paul who was in prison in Rome. Now, how do you think that happened? <laughs> Paul gives him the gospel of Onesimus. Um, this man is a slave who is not a believer. Listens to the gospel. He becomes a believer. He's working for Paul. He's helping Paul. He's encouraging Paul now. And he's known the story about Philemon. He knows about Philemon. He writes a letter and he says, when he comes to you, I want you to forgive him. Well, he left. He, he ran. Slaves don't do that. Matter of fact, do you know what that would usually bring? Either great punishment or death. You own your slaves. Philemon's a Christian. Paul knows that. Sets him up. And he says... No matter what, you forgive him. As he comes to you, you forgive. And you treat him like a brother in Christ. And he says, I know you're going to do it. Paul was confident. And, he, and that's a pretty good way to set somebody up. So say, I'm confident in you because I know you can do it. I know that you'll do even more than what I say. That's confident. But he had every right do whatever he wanted to do to that slave because he ran off and left, took things, stole from him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. This is the gospel lived out, isn't it, folks? This is not just doctrine, but you have application here all along through, don't you? Here are the Thessalonians. Paul says, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Is that confidence in somebody? Thessalonians gave him great joy. Of course, all believers did. That was 1 Thessalonians. Did I say Corinthians? Oh, oh, I said the right thing. Who's our hope? Who's our joy? Who's the crown? When Christ comes back at his second coming, you are. You are our joy. You are our glory and joy. Paul said a lot of great things about the church, didn't he? You know, Paul loved the church. That's what we're commanded to do, to love the church in action. Not just saying it, but he said a lot of positive things about them. He said, I can't think of anything to say about it. 
start thinking what you can do to say. Sometimes when you build up a, a real positive encouragement to somebody, they go, oh, really? And all of a sudden, you know what? It turns them from the negative things that they were doing to maybe something now that's the exact opposite. They realize somebody cares for them. They're concerned. You think, you think I can do that? But really, I, you think I have that gift? Is, you really think I, I should do that? Yeah, I think God has gifted you to do that. I've seen you do that before. You can do it. Through the power of Christ, through His Spirit, you can do it. You know what? People go, huh. It's amazing what kind of response you can get off by being positive with people. He must be discerning. But Paul was very discerning, but do we see what he says? Here's the way it can be. And it will be. He's so confident because he knows the power of the Holy Spirit. And he knows the power of the Word, doesn't he? And he knows that that changes people. It changed him. What did he say? The power of the gospel, Jesus Christ. It saves and it sanctifies you. I know. That's why he can have the confidence, isn't it? I know this can happen. Chapter 7 uh, of 2 Corinthians, verse 16. We just advance forward just a little bit. I rejoice that in everything, everything, I have confidence in you. Who's he telling this to? The Corinthians. I have confidence in, in everything. I saw the affection that you had for Titus. The obedience that you had. You received that in fear and trembling. Hmm. Well, Paul has every reason to be confident. And that's why he says that. Second Corinthians, we're still in seven here, right? Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. The Corinthians, some of them had gone back to some idolatry or some worship that was not right. He boasts. It's his confidence in the Corinthians that leads him to take great pride in them. It's an active one here. Not only does he have confidence, but he makes it vocal. The text is literally this. I do a lot of boasting on your behalf. He's bragging about the Corinthians, folks. He could be tearing them down, just ripped to shreds. Paul assumes a role of a loving, concerned father. And when a father has a son or a daughter, and they do some kind of accomplishment, what does he do? A good father will come alongside there and pat him on the back or say an encouraging word and say, Man, you did good. I'm proud of you. I like what you did there. Look at what God has given you to do. Look at this. People need that. They need a word of encouragement. It goes a long way. And I must tell you, my mom and dad sure um, gave that to me. Words of encouragement. And I know some of you say, I can't identify with that because it was always a tearing down. Now some of you, I, I think a lot of you actually have had really good encouragement. Some of you didn't didn't necessarily get that or got nothing. Maybe you didn't get torn down but really didn't get encouraged either. We, we need to be encouraged. We need to come up to others and say, you know what? 
man, I'm thankful to the Lord for you. I'm thankful for what you do in this ministry. How's it? He said, what ministry? I, I don't do anything. You know, you know, it might be that, that you really pray for the church and for all of it. You're concerned and you want to know what's going on with other people. Or it might be you know, somebody that just takes the trash out. It might be you know, somebody that just kind of straightens up around. Oh, they, they do this, they do that. It, it, you know, it, you sing in church. You're you're faithful. I mean, you go on and on and on. You you can start seeing good things about people. You need to go up to them and say, "Man, I'm thankful for you." You know what that does? It goes a long way for that person, and it spreads. It's like a disease. Only on the positive way, it starts spreading to others, and they go into the same thing. Man, it helps. And you know what? I've gotten it from you guys tremendously. I'm not begging it at all. I'm just saying, keep doing it. To others, do do that to others. Boast about them. That's uh, had a cause for pride. Uh, they're the source of encouragement. I'm greatly encouraged here. Somebody can come up and tell you the worst about somebody and says, "I'm going to tell you what's good about them. I'm going to boast about them." Chapter seven, verse fourteen. For if anything, I have boasted to him about you. That's to Titus. Paul boasted to Titus about the Corinthians. I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. Chapter 7, verse 16, I rejoice in everything. I have confidence in you. Chapter 8, verse 24, Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Show people... Why I'm boasting about you before the other churches. Wow. Paul kept doing it. Incredible, isn't it? He could have done the other thing. Still in verse 4. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. And for this I put comfort and joy. I think there's a Christmas song, Comfort and Joy. There you have it. There's your comfort and joy. True love has comfort. It has joy. It's really hard to imagine because all the sufferings that Paul was going through. And here in verse 4, he says, I'm filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy and all the afflictions. (laughs) Paul, man. I'm overflowing with joy and all our affliction. I'm filled with that. I've comforted. I, it's based, my comfort is based on my deep down joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. I sure don't feel like it. I don't care. I don't care what you feel. You need to realize the joy you have. Where's your joy come from? Love, joy, peace, patience. Kind, where's that come from? The fruit of the Spirit. Are you a believer? Yeah, you have joy. Bear fruit of it. Come on. I I just don't want to. I don't feel like it. Okay, sin then. You're you're disobedient. That's right. He says rejoice always. That's a command. We have no option. We are to rejoice. But does that mean we have to be laughing about everything that's really at a time that we should be grieving? No still have the joy of knowing that the sovereign God's in control here. I have joy in that. The joy of the Lord is my strength. 
and, and in the Greek, in the verb, he says, I was filled and still I am. I was filled, still I am, I'm filled with it. No pain, no suffering could take away his joy. Chapter 7, verse 13. Besides our comfort, uh, for this reason we have been comforted, and besides our comfort we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. In the middle of suffering, I find my tranquility, Paul says, based upon the joy that springs from my love for you. Wow. Is this what it's all about? My afflictions? You know what? I rejoice in it. Because God's doing something here. Go to verse 5. This is sacrifice. Sacrifice is definitely a word for love, isn't it? Sacrificial love. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. <coughs> Physically in his body, we, we had no rest. No rest. Really tired out. But we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within. At this point, Paul is kind of resuming on his travel log that he had. Kind of uh, shut that off in chapter 2, verse 13. He's picking this up. He left a promising evangelistic field in Troas, and he went to Macedonia in the hopes of meeting up with Titus because he wanted to know what was going on in the Corinthians. So he left the field that he had. Remember, the doors was open wide there, and he could have given the gospel, and so much was bearing on him with what was happening to the Corinthians that he went to, to Macedonia. And he heard the good news of the Corinthians' response. He's rejoicing there. But when he came into Macedonia, he was harassed at every turn, all the way around. The afflictions that are involved there. When we are afflicted on every side, that's that word that we keep seeing in Second Corinthians, it's thalipsis. I like that, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. Thalipsis, crushed down, pressured on. On every side. To put pressure on something. To afflict so much. And you had conflicts without. On the outside there were conflicts that were going on. Probably all the harassments. The persecution. The opposition that came. For preaching the gospel on the outside. And he was pursued from city to city. By a group of the Jewish legalizers. The unbelieving Jews. And they stirred up trouble. For him, everywhere he went, they were always right behind him. And then they would tell the church that he had set up how wicked of a man he was and he's preaching false things. And then, you know, we, we think of that word conflicts without, fears within, conflict here, make, um, it's quarrels, the fightings that it can be. What about fears within? I think we get the word phobos there, phobia that comes in our English. Paul faced more than just worry. It's talking about opposition he had encountered in Macedonia. A good reason to fear, but Paul really didn't fear for himself. He feared for the church. Acts chapter 20. Luke, the Apostle Luke, actually gives us a little insight to how Paul thought of these outside afflictions. 
20, verse 22. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen there. He knows he could probably get killed there. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. I'm going to go there. The Holy Spirit's saying that the, the bonds and afflictions are there for him. Well, Paul, don't go there. <laughs> but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. No matter what comes on me, it's okay. God has told me to do that. Christ told me to do this. There was a gospel. Whatever happens to me, God's going to control it anyway. So he went. So he got arrested. So he went to Rome, huh? As an arrested man and was put in jail there. That's exactly what God had in mind. And so it's not about fearing for himself, but it's fearing for the Thessalonian church. It's fearing for the Corinthian church. Fearing for the whole body of Christ. He had intense opposition. Matter of fact, it brought him to depression. I really think that's what that's saying here. In verse 6, but God who comforts the depressed. Humanly, this is going to happen. If you read C.H. Spurgeon, the great godly preacher that he was, definitely got into depression during the downgrade controversy. And it battled him. Much of the great men, Christians down through the ages, have ran into that. Not everybody gets into a depressed mode, because, but I think everybody here has had times when they've been depressed. Would I be safe to say that? Would I, I can be confident in that. Probably have. I've heard some that, that have never been depressed. But humanly, that's what happens, most of us. The word there is low. It's tapenos, and it means to be downcast, to be downhearted. We know what it means. He reached a, a low. But yet divine comfort sufficed but God who comforts the depressed here's the truth here's what the doctrine says here's how I feel but I know God is still comforting me comfort the God of comfort now we see exactly how the Lord comforted him he comforted us by the coming of Titus I don't know where there comes Titus Gets the news from Titus. I think this is this is great. So we get our eighth one here. Love is encouraged by others. And you recognize the encouragement and you can't help but have joy because of others. The body of Christ comes in and heals our wounds, our afflictions. Christ works in us, through us, by the Holy Spirit. Go to those people who need that. If you don't know about it, you can't go to it. They let you know it's a great time to be able to minister. Sometimes just to be there. Sometimes you really can't say anything. It's okay. Job's friends did the best whenever they didn't say anything. They were just there. Sometimes we have the word of God to give them. Comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. 
the Corinthians comforted Titus whenever he went there because they were, and we're going to be talking about this later next week, repentance. They had repented. He gets that news, Titus does. He's overlated in joy because of that. They turn from their sin. He reports to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. And we're at the end of our message today. Comforts, the coming of Titus was a great comfort, a great joy. And then the news that Titus had that he gave him. And it was the church's response and the reception of Titus, how they brought him in. And they responded in obedience and repentance. Their response went beyond obedience. And they, they ministered to Titus. He was there to minister to them and they ministered to him. Paul tells the Corinthians, he's been refreshed. He's been refreshed by all of you. Verse 13. The Corinthians, look at this. They're longing, longing for Paul. They're mourning for Paul. They're zeal for him. They wanted to restore the relationship. So whatever he was writing was exactly what was happened. Their sin had caused Paul pain and sorrow. They mourned. They grieved. They had been disloyal. They had zeal. Zeal means there's two emotions. There's love and there's a hatred. I said, what? 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 Hating the things that are not of God. Jesus went into the temple, cleaned the temple. Do you remember that? Went into the temple and cleaned it out. Did it two times. Didn't make people happy around there, did it? Cleansed the temple with his passion for love of the Father. That kind of zeal. Remember that? Your zeal has consumed me. Father's house. It caused him to be encouraged that there was a rejoicing. Paul did. The Corinthians had a loyalty to Paul. And so we see their mourning and uh, their, their grief, uh, their longing for him. They actually were repentant. They were sorry for their sins and how it affected him. How it just tore at Paul. Guess what? The Spirit of God works in that same kind of feeling to them. And now they mourned for him. Do you see how it works? That's God working in the church. It's because he cares. It's his church. He owns the church. And he's going to care about this person. He's going to care about this person. And what he can use sometimes is something opposite of what we would think. But it started with Paul's love. To love what is true and to hate the sin that desecrates the temple. We are the temple. Love sin. I mean, love God. Hate sin. Sorry about that. That desecrates the temple. There's a loyalty there that they had. And he encouraged them. They rejoice. Love responds to love. I think Paul has built the case. And we see it actually in action on both sides. It works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for your love. The two go hand in hand. You cannot have love without truth. You cannot have truth without love. Thank you for giving us both. Help us to be able to work these things out even more. For the rest of our lives, we need to learn 
what your love is about. Thank you for this illustration that Paul gave, for it goes way beyond the natural man. No natural man can do these things. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. We glorify you. Help us this day to live this out through the rest of the week, through the rest of our lives. And your sons, pray. Amen. Hey, we thank you once again for joining us. We pray that this message would serve to edify you. And we say goodbye until next time. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Until next time.